Hello, Common Ground Church. Evan Fowler here coming to you from episode three of our bonus content podcast on the book of Daniel. So as you guessed it, we will be covering chapter three of Daniel here today as we look at some of the details in chapter three that don't make it into the sermon. But yet, these things, I believe, are still helpful for us to understand the book of Daniel and helpful for us as we seek to be faithful to God while living in exile. All right, guys. Well, we are looking at chapter 3. If you remember what happened in chapter 2, you will remember that Nebuchadnezzar... He dreamt of a statue, and well, guess what? He was inspired so much by that, that this week, in chapter 3, he builds a statue, right? He builds this big, 90-foot-high statue made of gold. And if you remember in chapter 2, in the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was just the head of gold, right? But the rest of it were different metals, And the rest of it, it symbolized all these other kingdoms that were going to come after him. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, nope, uh, I do not just want to be the head. I do not want anyone to come after me. No one will come take over my empire. I'm going to keep that from happening. And it almost appears like uh, he was trying to outsmart God by making the entire statue gold. Maybe thinking he could change history, and and if he makes this image in real life, um, and he makes it all out of gold, then instead of having his kingdom taken, then then he'll be king forever. And even though God's word said this, even though God's word told me this, he told me that my kingdom would end. You know, I can find another way. You know, maybe I can change God wor- God's words. You know, when God's word is clear, uh, he looks for another way. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he thought that he was powerful enough to control his own destiny and and to fix this. And and that's that's really really something that still happens today, I think. Even when uh when God's word is clear, uh we don't always like it. We think we can avoid the outcome. Um it doesn't seem to make sense to us, and so we think eh, we can avoid that. And for Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this was really a hard dream to accept, a hard reality to accept that another kingdom could come after him or, or that this dream and its interpretation was really going to take place. Especially because if you remember in that dream, um, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold and then below that was silver and then bronze and then iron and, and the metals decreased in value and as they went down. And Daniel even said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the greatest and after you a lesser kingdom will come. And for Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure this seemed impossible Impossible to think that a lesser kingdom could come after a stronger kingdom. You know, how could a lesser kingdom beat a stronger kingdom? In Nebuchadnezzar's world, you know, might made right, the the powerful were in control and the weak could never beat the strong. But remember, this dream was a reminder that, that God works differently, that God determines who's in power, not just who's the strongest. And so Nebuchadnezzar thought, you know, there's no way. This is impossible. There's no way a weaker kingdom can come and beat us. And he had a right to think this. Um, They were very powerful. Babylon was very secure. They had huge walls, right? They had two levels of walls, some of which were over 250 feet tall. They were, you know, equipped with catapults. 
They would drop hot water on people from up above there. Some of their walls were so big that they would actually hold chariot races on top. You know, they were impenetrable. They were unbeatable. And so it was weird to think that somehow another nation could come in and defeat them. But as history tells us, that did happen. You know, years later, the Medes and the Persians came in, saw these big walls, and actually found a way around it. And what God predicted would come true did come true. That, um, you know, the Medes and the Persians who were powerful, they weren't as powerful as Babylon, but they didn't need to be. The way that they got through the walls and the way that they conquered Babylon was they actually went upriver of the Euphrates River and they diverted the river. They sent the river in another direction, hundreds of miles, so that the part of the river that was flowing into Babylon was a lot lower and a lot smaller. And then they snuck in to the basically the intake gates in Babylon, which would usually be a raging river. But since they had diverted it, the intakes were small enough that they could sneak in, break the bars, get into the city, and they sent a relatively small army in, circumvented Babylon's defenses, and then they conquered this city. (laughs) And in a way, showed Nebuchadnezzar in the way that they avoided Babylon's defenses, they showed Nebuchadnezzar that he could not avoid God's word, right? That he could not change this warning, he could not change this prediction. And this, I think, is good advice for all of us to consistently remember that if the Bible says, don't do A or B will happen, you can just believe the Bible. Um, It's a pretty safe bet. It's a pretty safe bet to assume that that will happen. Nebuchadnezzar learned this the hard way, right? We know what the scripture teaches in some of these things. Don't love money or it will become your master. You know, tame your tongue or else your tongue will tame you. You know, don't give in to the desires of your flesh or you'll actually be overtaken by your desires. Guard the gospel or you'll get tricked into believing all sorts of crazy things. You know, all of these warnings in the Bible should be taken seriously. And we shouldn't think that we can avoid the consequences of sin that the Bible warns about. We can't think like Nebuchadnezzar did that we can change the course of history or that we can change the way the world works by doing something different. Um, if, If the Bible says, don't do A or B will happen, just trust that. Just trust that that will happen. And I think this is really what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do in this situation by building this statue. And as we mentioned, um, this statue, as we mentioned in the sermon, the statue was really a representative of the nation of Babylon. Uh, not really sure what it was, but most likely it was this ambiguous figure that represented all of Babylon. And this passage historically has been a major contributor to Christian political theology, um, has been a major contributor to the reminder that the first thing God's people are supposed to be faithful to is God. And it's a, uh, a condemnation, basically, of national idolatry. And it's a reminder that Jesus' followers will essentially find themselves in certain places, but those places, those countries, those nations, they don't define us, right? We're under the rule and the power of God, not just this nation. And this has formed Christian political philosophy and theology for years, um, all the way back to Augustine. Augustine wrote in his famous book, The City of God, about this idea of dual citizenship, essentially. (laughs) 
And, you know, I would encourage you to read that book, The City of God, but I will warn you, it is incredibly complex and confusing. And after I read it, I will admit I didn't understand a thing about what he said. And I actually had to read a book about Augustine's book to actually understand it. Um, But Augustine used this passage as an example of our call to resist nationalism, essentially. And actually throughout history, a lot of people use this passage and they say that's one of the fundamental messages here. You know, I, I kind of think the fundamental message is, is idolatry in general. That is what makes the most sense to me, and that's what I see a lot. But there are a lot of people, like Augustine, um, you know, Gerald Sitzer is a historian that I cited in the sermon. He believes this is more of a claim against nationalism. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he leans into the nationalism approach here. And, and we see that. It's definitely there. It's definitely there that this is about, you know, our relationship to political powers. As we are citizens of heaven, what should our relationship to the political powers be? And, and this really is a good passage to, to guide us in that. You know, that makes sense. And there's, there's a lot of that in Scripture. There's a lot of that political language in Scripture. Another place that we would see something like that, for example, would be when Jesus claimed... I am the vine and you are the branches, right? Typically today, the focus of this passage or the message we pull out of that is prayer and spiritual formation, which I think is good. I think abiding does indeed mean, you know, prayer and spiritual formation. But historically, that passage has been viewed more as a political statement um, because we know that the, the national symbol of Israel was a vineyard. It was a vine that was basically like their bald eagle basically. And so Jesus was essentially saying, you know, I am the vine, I am the bald eagle, like you should abide in me, not in Israel. Like I am your nation, I am your kingdom, I am the one to whom your allegiance should be directed. You are first a citizen of heaven and second a citizen of Israel or the USA or Canada or Mexico or wherever. And he was reminding of where allegiance lies. And this is really interesting. A lot of people throughout history have looked at this passage and they have looked strictly at the political ideas in it. And so that's interesting. I don't think that's the main thing, but it's definitely there. And a lot of people have leaned into that. Another interesting point in this passage is that, again, the focus of this chapter, I guess the main character has shifted. In chapter one, main character was Daniel. Chapter two, main character was Nebuchadnezzar. And then here in chapter three, the main characters are our boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, Rakshak and Benny, if you watch the Veggie Tales. They're Hebrew names. These were the guys, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. And we really don't know much about these guys. Uh, it's especially hard because those are like the three most common Hebrew names in the Bible. I mean, there are like dozens of other people with those same names. Um, But as far as we know, this is the only other place, uh, aside from Hebrews citing them, that they're talked about. We don't really hear anything else about these guys outside of the book of Daniel, so we don't know much about them. Some Jewish traditions claim that these three guys were like later on went to become friends of Joshua Um, And they're the ones who were described in Zechariah 3.8 as the men who are a sign. 
And there's a lot of, you know, Jewish Midrash teachings about them, as well as some other details that are considered like deuterocanonical, um, but there's nothing else in the canon of scripture that we have about these guys. We really don't know anything else, just what we have in these few chapters. And and it's interesting, the, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have some other details on the furnace account and of this story. And they have this whole little hymn called the Song of the Three Young Men. Uh, you can find it in the RSV Bible and in some other translations. And it's really a beautiful little section. And it has this supposed prayer from Azariah. And it has this supposed song that was sung by these three guys while they were in the furnace. But we have left that out of the canon. Protestants have left that out of the canon because the earliest manuscripts we have of Daniel just don't include it. Uh, And, you know, we are really strict about making sure that what we include in scripture is backed up by a ton of evidence. And this little song of the three young men is just not in there. And so it's interesting. It's beautiful. It doesn't teach anything wrong, but there is no substantial evidence to say that it, it really was these guys that said that and that it really happened. And so... It's not in there, and we don't really have anything else about Rakshak or Benny aside from this. But nonetheless, it's a good reminder that, you know, these were historical events. And, you know, the reason we leave out stuff like that, even if they're good, even if it's this beautiful song, we leave it out of the scripture because a book like Daniel is supposed to be real historical events. And, If you've listened to the last two episodes in this podcast, you'll see that I keep sharing a lot of information that reminds us that these are things that really happened. These were events that took place on earth in history. And this is important. This is really important. And another thing that we can look to to kind of ground ourselves in history here is actually the list of instruments. Because this list of instruments that they give believe it or not, is pretty controversial, or at least used to be um, years ago, because Bible skeptics for a long time had claimed that Daniel had used a bunch of words that really were ahead of his time and that he shouldn't have known about. And some of these instruments, these were them. These are these words, because a lot of these are Greek instruments, and Daniel actually used the Greek words to refer to them. And so skeptics said for a while that there's no way Daniel could have known about these Greek instruments because the Greeks weren't in power for hundreds of years yet. But since then, actually it was around the 1950s that archeological digs in the area had found Babylonian texts that showed that even though the Greeks weren't in power, they had ledgers and business deals with Greek merchants and with Greek words and stuff on there. And so the Babylonians, they were buying and selling things from the Greeks and it would make perfect sense that some of these instruments had found their way into Babylon and that Daniel would know about them. He was an educated, rich guy. He would have had access to these things. And so he knows what a Greek instrument is. And the archaeology has shown that this indeed is a sign that Daniel's historically accurate. And then one final thing. This is another great example of non-participation that I did not include. You know, there are tons of great examples of non-participation that come out of World War II. I used a different one, but there is, of course, this story that Malcolm Gladwell made famous in a TED Talk a few years ago. Um, It's actually one of the most viewed TED Talks of all. And if you remember TED Talks at all, 
Uh, some of you might be a little young for that, but basically there were these talks online that would prove to you that if you had good public speaking skills, you can make any dumb idea sound believable. <laughs> and so basically Gladwell, he had this very popular, famous TED talk. And in it, he told this story of Andrew Trochme or Andre Trochme. And Trochme was a French pastor in the town of Le Chambon. And he got a letter from the Nazis telling him to round up any and all Jews and send them in and basically turn them in so that they could be arrested. And Trochme, instead of doing that, he sent an official letter back to the Nazis on behalf of the town. And this is what the letter said. He said, we have learned of the frightening scenes which took place in Paris where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris, told them in the Velle de Hive, the fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany, the children torn from their mothers who underwent the same fate of their husbands. We are afraid that measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, received order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. We have Jews. You are not getting them. <laughs> and that has now become a famous example of how to be the man and stick up for your fellow family members against the man and how Andre Trochme and this whole village resisted the Nazis in this case. And because of that, I think they estimated that somewhere around 3,500 people were saved because of what Trochme and his church and his community did in hiding these Jews. Mm -hmm. And that's just another great, famous example of non-participation. And another great example of how we, though our cases won't be quite as extreme, but how we can resist the pressures, the powers around us with non-participation. So thanks for listening to episode three on Daniel chapter three, as we look at the way Nebuchadnezzar and so many others try to avoid the inevitable, try to ignore the promises of scripture, just how this passage has been critical in forming the Christian's philosophy and theology of politics. A little bit about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and some of the uh, non-canonical sources we have for them. And then, of course, the classic, fun, super inspiring example of Andre Trochme and his famous statement, we have Jews, you're not getting them. Hopefully this, in some way, helps you to better understand the book of Daniel, helps you to better understand how we can be faithful to God while living in exile. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.